Well, I'm so thankful to be here this evening. Uh, it's good to be back home. And um, as I've said very presumptuously here previously, um, that if McClenney Church, and I wouldn't blame them, were to run me off, I'm coming to Little Union. I'm coming here. You all <laughs> keep a place for me. I know Sister B will have me. <laughs> I know she will. I, I'm... I'm getting to spend the weekend with Brother Matt and Sister B, and I can't tell you how thankful I am. I miss my dear friend, but that's how much he loves me. He's letting me stay with uh, Sister B and Brother Matt, and I've been so excited about that. Um, I never take for granted coming here. I, I do not. I don't take for granted any portion of God's house that he has blessed me uh, to experience in this world. Every, every privilege that I have is uh, in God's kingdom is a blood-bought privilege. And so I do not take it lightly. It is a privilege. It's an honor to be able to labor with Brother Ronnie Loudermilk here tonight, pull the gospel plow with him. I trust it to be the Lord's will. Be in service, Brother Ferries, who i uh, uh, seen his name many times, never got to meet him before, uh, but it's a privilege to be with him. And uh, you all know the story about why I have to love Brother Chris, because uh, <laughs> my wife said I had to. So, and she still says, Brother Chris, you gotta love him. So we do. Now I love him. I love his family. Um, I love his ministry. Um, I, I love the way that he serves God's people here. I love his preaching. Um, I, I really enjoy We That could cure the ills of the United States of America, by the way, if we'd all build front porches. You could be on, Brother Ronnie, that's the truth. That could be what's wrong. We could be on the judgments of God right now in America because we lack front porches. Um, I, I so, I appreciate it. I try to tell our people at home, I'm so thankful for, listen, young families. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the face of this earth is the safest place in the, it's the safest place for you to have your family. Amen. Keep your family here. I, I appreciate so much Brother Ronnie had to say. Now, so you are, you're my family in a very special way. Um, I love you all. So I'm going to talk to you from my heart this evening. Um, one, of the, one of the titles for the Church of the Lord Jesus, it's an unusual title, the City of Our Solemnities. That's unusual, isn't it? Now, if you had been with us, and most of you were, I think, <laughs> two weeks ago at McClenney Church Florida Fellowship meeting, you'd say, the church is not the city of our solemnity. It was not that, that weekend. It was the joy of the whole earth. But every experience in life is not a mountaintop experience for God's people in this world. We have valley experiences. You all know that. A brother who was at the Florida Fellowship meeting, he, he said, uh, he apologized to me afterward. The Lord had blessed him greatly. 
And he later he apologized. He said, I, I spoke about so much brokenness, Brother David, I apologize. And I said, thank God, because the only kind of people that we have that attend McClenny Church are broken people. It is. It's the truth. I've said before, um, and it proves out true constantly, much to the grief of my heart, that probably if we could see in tangible, visible form the weight and the burdens that some of you brought in here tonight that nobody knows anything about except you and the good Lord, it would maybe frighten some of us. If we could see them in physical form, the weights on your shoulders that maybe some of you brought in. So I will tell you, um, some of you know vocationally uh, that you know I work in public education and so uh, my superintendent uh, purchased a fireman's hat for me about a year ago. She said, I've decided that's your, that's your job. That's what you do. You're the fireman for the school district. I've never put out a fire in my life except, you know, a little. I don't, but I do that I, in our school district. I deal with a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty, and I have for years. Um, if you get, you know, 8,000 people together at one time, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> Human beings, what they are. And so uh, I do the very best I can. And in 35 years in public education, I want to tell you, um, I dealt with probably the most darkness this week, dark issues this week. A 16-year-old, uh, a 16-year-old that pulled the trigger on a double murder. I dealt with that this week. Um, other things that are too graphic for young years to hear. Um, I dealt with that this week. Every day, and what would have normally been, you know, just an amazing week, you know, uh, an incredible over-the-top week. Even the things that are normally very over-the-top are not over-the-top this week. We live in a broken world. We do. People, people get amazed um, that life can be as challenging as it is. But we have to remember, we're not home yet. So over the course of the years, over the and this is what I want to share from my heart, in difficult times when things are really, really difficult, and I've said these three things this week several times, <laughs> over the course of the years, there are three things that I encourage myself with. There are three things that I say to myself when things are really, really difficult and I'm feeling the brokenness of this world. I want to share them with you tonight. But first, we're going to read this. We all need encouraging. And this is the well that we go to. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. You're familiar with it. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. I love this. David was in a bind. He was in a great bind. Uh, Saul was seeking his life, of course. You know that story. Saul was seeking him. Saul was going to have him. The odds were against David, except that God was with that young man. David had some assets that he could leverage. He had his valiant 600 that went with him everywhere he went, men that were committed uh, when it was not uh, a very healthy thing to do to be committed to the young future king, but those valiant 600. And David encouraged himself um, in the cave of Agilom with them, in the wilderness of Ziph with them, uh, in the wood of Hereth with them. But now in this verse... Even his valiant 600 
have turned on him. And they think that David has led them just as afoul as he possibly can. Um, and they're ready to stone him. They've lost their wives and their children and all that they have because of following David's leadership. And now even his, his closest friends are ready to stone him. He's being chased by Saul in a professional army. Now his own armed contingent is against him. David's broken. He's as broken as he can be. You've, if you have any life experience at all, you've been broken already, right? If you have any life experience at all, you have come to that place in your life, uh, maybe up to that point in your life, you've, you've been in tight places, you've been in difficult places, but you thought, you know, the Lord will get me through this. And then you come to a place, and no, this is fine. This is the one that's going to take me out. I won't overcome this. It's over. All of my assets are used up. I have no hope. I have no strength. I have no wisdom. Don't know what to do. And in a hopeless situation, David found hope. David was greatly distressed. Verse 6, for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself in the Lord. Um, there was a French philosopher in the late 1800s that said, if you, can, if you can take away a man's hope, he will curse the day that he was born. I had people, when I, I remember that there was a thing about it in our community. Whenever I was just a 17-year-old boy, and I went to Baker County, I remember how... Um, how folks in that community that weren't old Baptists, they really did not like the word hope in other religious orders. And whenever I'd go to a funeral, I always mention hope. And so they begin to make a caricature out of it at funerals. When I have funerals with other ministers, they said, well, if I, all I had was a hope, then I wouldn't have anything. Uh, hope's not, hope's, uh, there's nothing to a hope. Well, let me say this. A hope is not a wish. It's not a wish. A hope is not a wishful thinking. A hope for the child of God is an earnest expectation of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So how can you find hope in the midst of apparent hopelessness? How can you refresh yourself when it looks like the brook has gone dry? So... I want to say this, preachers preach to themselves. They do. We do. <laughs> we do. I've gone up and down the road talking to my, and that was before cell phones. Now thank God for voice-activated cell phones. I don't look so stupid anymore. But I'm telling you, 25 years ago, there were people that would question my sanity. If they saw me going down the road, I was talking just as hard as I could, preaching to myself. You know, come on, son. So three things. Three things that I say and that I remember, three ways I encourage that I preach to myself. The first thing, and let me say, this is not like high theology. 
You know, sometimes we get beguiled away from the simplicity that there is in Christ. And I promise you, whenever the house is crashing down, you may not be able to sort out what are the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. (laughs) You may not be able to do that. But you can remember the first thing, and that is this, is that I, I say this, it may sound like it is childlike faith. Jesus is with me, and he has all power. (laughs) that encourages me in times and ways that I cannot express. Listen, can you imagine how paralyzed the 11 were? Jesus is leaving them. He's going away. He's telling them, I'm going, I'm leaving. He's at the end of his 40-day post-resurrection ministry. And I'm telling you, this man... That Peter, James, and John, they left their nets on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Their only visible means of support. They left their nets. Professional fishermen, they left them there to rot. They've walked away from them. And the man that they followed, now he's leaving them. He's going. He's going away after a 40-day post-resurrection ministry, you say, well, no, they're, they're all feeling good about it. No, here in Matthew, some of them are still doubting. He's leaving. Did we make the right decision? But listen to what he says. Jesus knows that their hearts in verse 17 are melting inside of them. And Jesus came and spake and said unto them, saying this, All power is given to me, both in heaven and in earth. How much power does Jesus have? Every single bit of it belongs to him. All power is given to me, both in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore. I remember I was much younger and I was at Cool Springs Primitive Baptist Church and Middle Georgia, and Brother Darty was the pastor, and I was doing my best to preach, and just I just felt so insignificant and so weak. Little 90-year-old brother came up to me, and he quoted this verse of Scripture after I got through preaching. And he said, I can see you troubled. He said, I've been serving the Lord since I was a 20-year-old boy, 70 years I've been going. And he said, I want you to know I've never taken one step in my strength. He said, I've gone in this precious promise. Jesus said, all power, both in heaven and in earth, it's mine. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore. You cannot make it on your own. You won't make it on your own. But Jesus, who has all power, listen what he says. In the last verse, he says, I want you to go teach them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you how long? Always, even to the end of the world. I bathe my soul in that promise that Jesus is with me all the way, all the way, even to the end of the world. He's got all power. And let me say this. He has specific kinds of power. I'm going to go as quickly as I can with this. But I want you to understand, it's not just power in a, um, in a general sense. He has all power. Whatever kind of power there is, there is a, uh, I want you to know, first of all, that he has rightful power. That he rightfully 
Power belongs to God. Um, in the 62nd Psalm, David says, God has spoken. Uh, God has spoken once. It's as, if God, it's as if God had walked to the edge of eternity. And uh, in the greatness of his power, he speaks. God has spoken once. And it echoes. He said, twice have I heard it. It echoed throughout eternity. What did God say? He said, Power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. It's his. It's rightfully his. You see, everybody that possesses power, it's not rightfully theirs. Um, Satan is a horrific, murderous, monstrous beast. And he has incredible power. Even... Uh, even Michael the archangel uh, did not rail against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. He's a powerful beast, but his power is not rightful power. He's a usurper of power. But God legitimately has power. Somebody that has power legitimately is called plenary power. They legally, rightfully have power. And Jesus legally, rightfully has power. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says that God has put all things, the triune Godhead has put all things underneath the feet of the Son of God, and that God, by covenant arrangement, has given Christ to be head over all things to the church. He's in the place of power and authority over the church, rightfully so. God the Father has vested it in him uh, in a covenantal arrangement. Then there's, uh, there's something called positional power, positional authority. Whether you like the president or not, and we could... <laughs> there is positional authority in the office of the White House. Um, and the person who sits there, I pray for them because I'm commanded to pray for them. Sometimes I have prayed for our presidents on this wise, as David prayed in the book of Psalms, wherefore uh, let his days be few and his offices be given to another. I have prayed that prayer before. <laughs> but while he's there, while he's there, he has positional rightful constitutional power by virtue of the position that he occupies. And Jesus Christ, who is with us always and has power, has positional authority. Listen, whenever we went back to glory, whenever Christ went back to glory, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And we don't hear about this much. But... Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that's risen again, who is at the right hand of God. There's a lot in that, in that little phrase right there. Who is at the right hand of God. And that speaks of the session or the seating of Christ in heaven. When Christ went back to glory, he was seated by God the Father at his right hand. And the right hand is, you know, according to Jewish tradition, um, whoever sat at the right hand 
of majesty and lordship was the hand of authority. It was the place of authority. Whoever was seated on the right hand of whoever was Lord, uh, that person uh, was vested with authority to carry out the will of the person who was head. And so Jesus Christ goes back to heaven and he's seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, which means that in that position, he has the authority to execute the will of God throughout this universe by virtue, again, of his position in the covenant of grace. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus have all of that? Didn't Jesus have all of that authority before he left? I mean, is God, doesn't he have all that authority? Absolutely, as God, he has all power. But we're talking about him having power and authority over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the covenant of grace is given to be head over all things to the church. That's his position. And he's seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so it is Jesus who was given that name because he undertook covenantal obligations on your part, agreed to represent you, be your substitute, die the death that you could not die after he'd lived the life that you could never live, died the death that you could not die so that you could go to a place that you would never get. And God promised, the triune God promised the Son of God that if he would do that in covenant arrangement, that at the end of that, if he would, if he would humble himself and become obedient even to the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him because of what he's done. He has been exalted. And he's been given a name above every other name. And that is King of kings and Lord of lords. But that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He has positional power. He reigns. Jesus Christ is reigning. All rule and authority is subject to him. There's something you'll hear about very often. It's called referent authority or rule. Referent authority or referent power. And that's power that belongs to somebody because of the knowledge that they possess. That's a little, that's, that's unusual. How does, because somebody's smart, how does that give them power? It's amazing. You've heard the old saying, knowledge is power. You know, whenever uh, the modern state of Israel was established, when the, this is referent, knowledge-based power. Uh, when the modern state of Israel was being established, do you know who they wanted to be the first prime minister of Israel? A very popular uh, Jewish man that you've all heard, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein quickly turned it down. He said, thank you, I appreciate that. My, my uh, proficiency, uh, my expertise is in physics. I know absolutely nothing about politics. I'm the last person that you need as prime minister. Thank God he had some common sense. <laughs> but it was just that he was such a smart human being, such a, that wielded a great deal of power with uh, the Jewish people that were establishing uh, that state. 
He wielded power among them just by virtue of his wisdom. That gave him referent power or referent authority. Our Lord Jesus Christ has referent power because of his wisdom. The prophet Isaiah in the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. That glorious, glorious chapter. He speaks of the power. He speaks of the power of the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ. That no one else in this universe but God himself possesses. Let me ask you this. No, let me tell you this. You know why I can't save my, one of the many myriad of reasons that I can't save myself? Because I don't know what God requires in the matter of salvation and redemption. In order for me to be able to save myself, one of the requisites is I would have to know the mind of God. I would have to understand thoroughly, completely, perfectly what God himself would require. And no one knows that. No one knows that. And whenever... People tell me, well, that man saved me. Absolutely. He doesn't have enough referent power. He doesn't have enough knowledge. But let me tell you about somebody who does have that kind of referent power and authority. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 11. He says, he shall see. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And he shall be satisfied. Most preachers today are preaching that God the Father is wringing his hands. And that the Son of God is disappointed because people aren't making it to heaven that he died for. And the Holy Spirit is defeated. That's not what Isaiah said. He said he shall see the travail of a soul and he shall be satisfied. Heaven satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. He said, and by his knowledge, by his wisdom, by his knowledge and wisdom, shall my righteous servant justify many. Amen. You know, one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus Christ could redeem you and justify you, he knew what God would require because he was God. And he walked out perfectly in your law place for 33 and a half years. Every step that he made, every breath that he made was to the glory of God and the vindicating of God's law and the keeping of God's righteous and holy law until he lays his life down. That's power, my friends. Power belongs to God. And that same Jesus, that same Jesus that has all of that power that same Jesus that has all of that power is with me. He promised he'd be with me. And so, though hell may rage and venner spite, yet Christ will save his heart's delight. Though Satan strive, your souls to ensnare, you're still the objects of his care. And in his power, he can keep what he saved. You may feel like the world's going to overwhelm you. But our powerful King Jesus, the best friend you've ever had, he's got the power to keep what he saved. He's a promise maker, a promise keeper. He has power. I'm not going to get to all three of them, but I'm going to share the second one with you. I had to call on this a lot this week. Jesus Christ is with me as all power. The last one. God is underneath. I want you to remember this. God is underneath. We don't very often refer to God in those terms as being underneath. But I hope in just a minute you'll be glad he is. 
Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 27. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been to the bottom before? Do you know what the bottom is like? This is what Moses assures the hearts of God's people. He says, listen to this. He said, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath, underneath are the everlasting arms. Underneath. I'm glad to say this. It doesn't matter how low you go. God can get underneath. Underneath are the everlasting arms. You know, I, as I said, I love that he's, he is, he's the God of the mountains. He's the God of the high places of the earth. And I love to be with him. I love it whenever he blesses and he makes my feet to be like uh, hind's feet upon my high places. And I'm able to follow him in, in the glorious realms of the high places of the earth and skip around like a hind and, and a roebuck by the power of the spirit and rejoice in God and boast in Jesus all day long. I'm thankful when it's like that. But there are times that I go to the valley. Amen. <laughs> So you know what Moses is saying? Let me tell you, he is the God of the valley. He doesn't just love you and care for you when you're on the mountaintop. He's with you in the valley. I told a mother this week whose son will spend the rest of his life in jail. And she's a good woman. I've known her for many years. I told her that God is underneath. I told that precious woman that the everlasting arms, it doesn't matter how low you go, and it's all darkness right now, but the everlasting arms are underneath. God knows how to go low because on Calvary's rugged brow, Jesus went lower than you'll ever go. He knows what it looks like from the underneath. And so I'm telling you today, that God has a desk at the bottom of the rope. At the end of the rope, God has a desk there. At the bottom of the ladder, he has an office there. And he'll be with you there. You remember, Jesus is with me. He has all power. He's underneath. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon us because things aren't working. Men and women, boys and girls, will abandon you when it doesn't go well with you. They will. But not Jesus. The everlasting arms are underneath. David said, whether shall I go from thy spirit? Whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. You say, Brother David, can a child of God go to hell? David said he'd made his bed in hell. Jonah said that he cried from where? The belly of hell. But it's like this. I'll tell you what my daddy used to say. My daddy used to say, he said, son, I'm not worried about dying and going to hell. I'm worried about going to hell and then dying. Amen. We can put ourselves in hell in this world. And that's what Brother Ronnie was talking about. 
and temporal salvation and temporal deliverances. And I'm telling you that if you put yourself there, whether if it's by your, if it's by your own work, you've done it. You know, you've done it to yourself. Then if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, confessing your sin doesn't mean, listen, if what I've done, if you're offended because, you know, of what I've, I'm sorry. That's, that's not it. I'm sorry if you're, that's not it. I mean, confessing it's sin against thee and the only have I done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be just. Sometimes we put ourselves in hell. Confess, acknowledge sin, see sin as God sees sin. Call it what it is. Plead the blood of Christ. And you'll feel the power that there is in the blood of Christ and the underneath everlasting arms. If there are circumstances that are thrust upon you like Job's, and some of us think, no, the way I'll make it through difficulty is I'll just wait and I know God's going to give me the answer by and by. You know, he never answered Job's question. Why? He never did. And I've got a clue for it. He's not going to answer all your questions. All you need to know is that Jesus is always with me. He has all power. And the will of God's never going to leave me where the grace of God cannot keep me. The everlasting arms are underneath. And you can make it. I'm not telling. Don't ask me. Don't ask me to tell you how you'll make it next month. He's, he just gives me grace for today. He's with me today. I don't know if I'm going to be here next month. He's not going to give you grace. He is not going to give you grace for what happened two months ago. You need to let that go. He's not going to give you grace for three months from now. He will give you grace for today. He'll be with you today. He'll hold you up today. And so what is the third thing? I'm out of time, and I'm going to be as careful as Brother Ronnie was with time. <laughs> if you'll come back uh, maybe Saturday night or Sunday morning, maybe. Or be where Brother Ronnie's going to be in the morning. He's going to tell you the rest of the story there. We may, <laughs> I may tell you the rest. Of, I love you all so much. May God bless you and keep you.